As Mark said, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central, and uh, we are glad that you've joined us. And this morning, it's Easter Sunday. In case you didn't know, and as Mark said, we have the privilege of coming together every Sunday morning and celebrating that Christ is risen, right? We have the privilege every morning, every Sunday morning, of gathering together as the church and celebrating that the tomb is empty and that we serve a risen Savior. But Easter Sunday means that more of the world takes notice of what we celebrate every Sunday. So for most people, uh, Easter is nothing more than chocolate and pastel colors. But there are times, even in people who don't come to church, who don't believe in Jesus, there are times when Easter helps them focus on the resurrection as well. So whether it's they go to church with Grammy because they feel it's the good thing to do, or whether sometime on that Friday as they enjoy their day off, they say, why do I have the day off? And so more people in the world this weekend have thought about the resurrection than any other weekend. And for that, we can be thankful right? But the privilege of the church is that we get together every Sunday and say the stone was rolled away, the ground began to shake, he is alive, he's glorified, he is risen. And so that's the exciting thing about being a part of the church of Jesus. He is alive. And so this morning, uh, for the last few months, we've been working our way through the book of Romans, and this morning we're going to continue there, and we're at the end of Romans chapter 8, and I can't think of a better uh, passage to speak on on Easter Sunday than the end of Romans 8, probably because Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, and that's fact, that's just not my personal preference. And so we'll go through 31 to 39 at the end of chapter 8, and we're going to ask six questions that Paul asks here. So we have six questions for Easter from Romans 8, 31 to 39, and I really believe Keith's word that he shared during worship about shaking the dust off our clothes, realizing who God is, who we are. I'm really trusting that God's going to use these verses and, uh, and do just that, that he's going to blow the dust off some clothes this morning. We're going to see ourselves for who we really are and who he really is. Amen. Good. Here we go. So I'll pray. We'll jump in. Verse 31. Father, we're just thankful that we do have the privilege of gathering together on an Easter Sunday, on every Sunday, on any day of the week. We can gather together and give you the praise and the glory that you deserve. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for your great plan of salvation, that you sent your son to die for us, that you didn't leave him in the grave, that you rose him again to new life. And we thank you that when we come to you, you raise us again to new life, that that resurrection power is alive in us. And so we just pray this morning as we come to your word uh, that your spirit uh, would speak to us. We want to be changed by your word this morning. We do uh, want, we don't just want those to be words, we want them to be a reality in our life. We want you to blow the dust off our clothes. And for those of us here who don't know you yet, we pray that you would draw them by your spirit this morning to experience new life in you. For your glory we pray. Amen. 
All right, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? So let's hold up right there, okay? Because before we go any further, we've got to know what these things are, right? What shall we say to these things kind of needs a little background. So if you've been here for the last few Sundays, last few months, you kind of have a foggy idea of what those things are, what these things are that he's referring to. But if this is your first Sunday, then it's not a great way to start. It's a bit like back a few years ago when the series Lost was pretty big and everyone was talking about Lost and Karen and I were at camp and all these guys that were a lot younger were talking about Lost. And so I said, well, I should watch Lost. But it was like season four, episode 56. (laughs) And it was just like, why are they on the island? And why is that guy so angry? And that whole episode was a flashback. I'm out, right? It was very frustrating. And so if we just jump in at what then shall we say to these things and not explain what these things are before moving forward, it can be a bit like that. And I don't want you to do that. So in one sense, when Paul says these things, he's referring to what he just said in the previous few verses and what Mark looked at last week. Um, But there's also a sense that it's bigger than that. And when he says, what then shall we say to these things, we can even go all the way back to Romans chapter 1. Because for the last eight verses, Paul has been unpacking the gospel for us. And then he gets to the end of Romans 8 and he says, what then shall we say to these things? And so we can go all the way back and see that he's calling us to respond to the full gospel that he spent eight chapters unpacking for us. And so what is that gospel that he's referring to? If you remember way back in January, we started with Romans 1, 16 to 17 where Paul tells us that the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection has the power to save everyone who believes, that it reveals God's righteousness to us, and that through faith we can be declared righteous before God. And that's important because in the next three chapters he shows us that we are not righteous, and we are all guilty before God. All of us, every person here, every person on earth has at some point or is currently saying, my way is better. I don't care what God says. And so Paul says we fail to honor God or give him thanks. Instead, we choose to go our own way, do our own things, exalt ourselves, approve sin. And in doing so, we spit in God's face, we turn our back on him, and we go our own way. And a God who is holy and righteous and just, he just cannot let that offense go. He cannot let us off the hook. He can't. His character requires him to judge sin and to execute his wrath on our rebellion. We just can't live a good enough life to save ourselves. Us on our best days when we're riding high and we're just nailing life, it's not good enough. It is not good enough. The Bible says that even our righteousness is like filthy rags. We need something else outside of ourselves to save us. We need a way. 
And then Romans 3 comes and we see God makes a way. God makes a way. And Paul says at the end of chapter 3 that God sends his son Jesus in the flesh, takes him to a cross, crucifies him, pours out his wrath against our sin on his son whom he loves. And then three days later, God raises him from the dead. He raised him from the dead and the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He's alive and all who receive him by faith, God cancels our sin. We're forgiven, we're adopted, we're justified in his sight. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 23 and 24. Then we get to chapter 4. Paul tells us that we're justified before God. We're made right in his eyes, not by our works, not by our efforts, not by how much we give, not by how much we read or pray, not by how much we serve at the soup kitchen, whether we leave our house and help anybody or if we sit home and binge watch Netflix. Our works do not save us. They do not save us. We are saved only, solely, completely by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Romans 5, Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Not work, but faith justifies. Not the godly, but the ungodly. That is the good news of Romans. That is the good gospel message that Easter brings. But it doesn't stop there. In chapter 5, because we've been justified, we have peace with God. God pours his love into our hearts and we have a hope that is so solid and so glorious that we can endure whatever suffering we might encounter here on earth. We can rejoice in our present sufferings. And because Adam sinned, sin and death are realities for every single person. But for those of us who are justified, we are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. So that grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In chapter 6, we're not just freed from the punishment of our sin, but we are released from its power as well. It doesn't mean that we won't ever sin again, but it does mean that we've died to sin. That the same power that Jesus was raised from the dead with, that resurrection power now works in us. And so we can see the shackles of our sin fall to the ground. And we're no longer slaves to sin, we're now slaves to righteousness. In chapter 7, we're not only freed from the power of sin, we're freed from the law being over us. And Paul introduces that now we're not under the law, we're now united to Christ, so that the Christian life isn't about rule-keeping, it's about Christ-loving. And now we can even do more than the law requires of us because it's not about do this, don't do that. It's about Jesus and my love for him and about his spirit working in me. We get to Romans 8. We see that we're not by ourselves. We have the spirit on us, leading us to fight against sin, making us his children, giving us an inheritance 
in him so that no matter what this life looks like and no matter what suffering we might, we might encounter, we can fix our eyes on things above. We have the Spirit interceding on our behalf and one day we will obtain the glory of the freedom of the children of God. And Jesus will come, our risen King. He'll return. He'll set us right and He'll set the whole creation that's been broken by sin. He'll set it right for His everlasting glory. That is the full gospel. So when we see that, we get to verse 31, the only response we have is, what then shall we say to these things? Right? What shall we say to these things? But maybe you've never received that before. Maybe you've never even heard the gospel before. Maybe this morning you know you're not in right relationship with God. The good news for you this morning is that it is available to you. You need to know this morning that God sent His Son, even while you're still in your sin, to die for you because He loves you. And even though you look at your life and you just see failure and fault after fault after fault, and you see sin and rebellion and neglect and apathy towards God, you see pain that you've caused others, you see pain that's been caused to you, you see broken relationships and regrets and a whole lot of, oh, if I could just go back and change that, and a whole lot of, God could never love me. Even in that hot mess, God comes and dies for you. Your mess does not surprise God. He knows you, and just as you are, you can come to God this morning and receive new life. And my prayer is that you see it, and that this morning you'd run to Jesus, and you'd find in Him all that you need. You'd find in Him purpose for life. You'd find in Him peace. You'd find in Him joy. You'd find life in Him. The tomb is empty this morning so that your life can be full. It can be full. He promises you abundant life. But what's great about the gospel is that it's just as much for a Christian of 40 years as it is for someone who's not yet a Christian. That's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel isn't just a gateway, it's the path that we walk on every day. Paul sees the gospel and he says, what are we going to say to these things? So if you've been a Christian for a while, does the gospel make you say that? Does the gospel make you say, what are we going to say to these things? Does it amaze you? Does it give you a sense of wonder? Does it come with the swell of this is too good to be true? Or have we become familiar? Is it just commonplace? Have we grown up in it and got so used to it that even reading Romans 8 doesn't give us any sense of amazement or wonder of what God has done? Have we lost sight of our great salvation? I read a story in 1937, Time magazine featured an Indian ruler by the name of Osman Ali Khan on its cover and named him the richest man in the world. He was so rich that money, gold, jewels were all just commonplace 
In fact, he had a diamond the size of a golf ball that weighed $200 million, and he used it as a paperweight on his desk. And we hear that, and we're just like, something doesn't sit well with us, right? And it's something of so much value and something so precious and to be used in such a common way. But we do the same thing with the gospel. We have this precious diamond of the gospel, and we just set it on our desk like a paperweight. The most dangerous thing for a Christian is when the gospel becomes regular and familiar, when it ceases to captivate us. When we no longer see the gospel, as Joe said, applicable to every area of our life. Which it is. The gospel is for you today. No matter if you're not a Christian or if you've been a Christian for 80 years, the gospel is for you today. And Paul shows us here at the end of Romans 8, as he comes to his big conclusion of this section, he shows us that if you're a Christian, not only did Jesus' death and resurrection save you, but it shapes your thoughts and your attitudes. It tears through your excuses and motivates you to radically follow him. So look at what Paul says by asking these questions. We've already got through one question. By asking five more questions that have no answers, Paul tears through all our obstacles and sets us up to freely and fully follow God into whatever he might be calling us to. So what shall we say to these things? What shall we who are God's children, who have put our trust in Jesus, what shall we say to this glorious gospel? And then quickly he follows with question number two. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for Christ Central Church, who can be against Christ Central Church? Do you understand what that means? The God who spoke angels into existence, who spoke protons and neutrons and electrons into existence, who spoke and galaxies existed where no galaxies were before, is for us. And if he is for Keith Bowering, who can be against Keith Bowering? Right? The God who spoke and the Red Sea was parted and the sun stood still and the walls of Jericho fell and uh, the, the waves were stilled and the mouths of lions were shut and the blind could see and the, and the lame could walk, and the lepers were healed, and the demons were cast out, who spoke, and Lazarus came out of the grave after four days. If he is for Paul Foland, who can be against Paul Foland? Right? If God is for us, who can be against us? All of his infinite wisdom and power is working for you. And that doesn't mean that the Christian life is easy street. We can have friends turn on us. We can have co-workers gossip about us. We can have authorities come down on us. Satan can attack us, but no one can be against us because God is for us. God is for us. And if God is for you, no one can be against you. 
And that truth is important because to truly live the Christian life, risk is required. Hudson Taylor, who spent 51 years as a missionary to China, said, unless there's an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. Unless there's an element of risk, there is no need for faith. Risk is required. Fear is lurking around. Faith is needed that God is for you and not against you. There are no superheroes in the church. We fool ourselves if we think, well, that person has it just so easy. Everything just comes so easy for them. When they witness to people and talk to people about Jesus, it's just so easy and it's so hard for me. And when they share on a Sunday morning, it's so easy and it's so hard for me. And when they do this and when they serve in that way, everyone has it easier than me. And we try to elevate people. And yes, there's an element of God gives gifts and we're the body and we're all working together. But don't think that that person does not overcome risk and fear with the truth of God in order to do what they are doing. Right? Risk is required. So whether it's Keith going on a spontaneous solo on the electric guitar or Hudson Taylor giving his life to see the gospel go forth in China, they've all done that by overcoming fear with the truth that God is for them and not against them. So every Sunday when I get up here to preach, if left to myself, I would not. Every Saturday night, Piling lumber at Topmire looks a lot more appealing. <laughs> Just being real. Just being real. And so I'm afraid. I don't want to get up. There's risk. There's fear. If left to myself, I'm not going to. I'm going to call Joe. I'm going to say, <coughs> I'm sick. I can't do it. And so every Sunday, I read Jeremiah chapter 1. Every, ch every Sunday, I read Jeremiah Chapter 1, 5 to 12. I read it this morning. I read it every morning because, as my dad would say, it's good for what ails me. <laughs> because in it, I see that God is with me. Do not be afraid. I am with you to deliver you. And as I pound that truth in, fear is pounded out. So oftentimes, as Christians, we accomplish so little because we don't want to risk anything. We don't want to risk opposition. We don't want to risk failure. But God is for us, and because he has removed our eternal risk, then we can risk anything. He is for you, not against you. Question number three. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. When it comes to Easter, a question a lot of people ask is, who killed Jesus? Some people say the Jews. Some people say Pilate and the Romans. Some people say Satan did. Some people say we did. Romans 8 tells us God did. God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for you. He gave him up. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God didn't sit back and watch as wicked men killed his son. He was neither helpless nor disinterested. He was heavily involved in the process. 
He was active and He was moved by love for you. God was not passive on Good Friday. And as much as His purposes and His power are displayed on Sunday morning, His purposes and His power are displayed on Good Friday. He did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up. For who? For you. And Paul says, if God gave Jesus His most precious, precious possession up for you, why would He hold anything else that you need? So with the first question, Paul attacks our fear. With this question, he attacks our worry and our anxiety. And we need to see how the Gospel removes that because we serve a God who is so generous that He gave His Son for you. And we worry about our needs. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, With His greatest gift, God will also freely give me everything I shall ever need in health, in sickness, in pleasure, in pain, in plenty, in poverty. Whatever my circumstances might be, He will freely give me all that is necessary to keep me, to hold me, to guide me, to mold me, until at last I shall see Him as He is and be made like Him and be with Him in everlasting glory. He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not then with Him graciously give us all things? Question 4 and 5 are really two parts to the same question. Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who's going to condemn. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And if God justifies us, who's going to condemn us? It is Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And Paul's been hammering this home throughout his letter, which shows just how important it is and how quick we are to forget it. It is God who justifies us. It is God who gives us right standing before God. It is Christ Jesus who died for us and is now interceding for us at His Father's right hand. Why feel guilty? Why be crippled by guilt? Why ever feel condemned and unforgiven? If God has declared you righteous, who can bring any charge against you? What court can they try you in to overthrow the verdict that God has already declared. You're righteous. And notice as well, I love this, maybe it's just me, it says, it is Christ Jesus who died. As if to say, God just doesn't go up to uh, the crowd and just pick some first century Jewish ordinary Joe. No offense, Joe. <laughs> it is Christ Jesus who died. It wasn't Moses, it wasn't David, it wasn't Paul, it wasn't Peter, it wasn't John. It was Christ Jesus who died. It was Christ Jesus who died for you. More than that, who was raised, and not only raised, but is now at God's side interceding for you. And so why ever feel guilty or condemned before God? When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the sin within, upward you look and see him there who made an end to all your sin. Case closed. Fear 
worry, guilt, they're all torn down by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. But those things that Paul has attacked in the first few questions all just kind of find their way back to the last question. It's like they're all obstacles in the river kind of trying to dam things up, right? Fear and worry and guilt and I know God's calling me to this, but I'm so afraid and will he ever look after me? And what about this and this that I've done? They're all obstacles trying to keep you from where God wants you to be. They're all like dams in the river, but the dams are all made from the same material and that's a doubt, a disbelief, an ignorance of the love of God on you. And so all those questions ultimately find their way back to, does God love me? Does he love me today? Will he love me tomorrow? Will anything change that? So that's why Paul comes to the last question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ is ultimately what it boils down to. And if you're not a Christian this morning, maybe you feel God's Spirit beginning to work in your life, draw you to Himself, even though you might not articulate it in that way. But a question you probably have is, does God love me? Does He love me? And John 3.16 isn't just a verse for six-year-olds in kids' church. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life it says for God so loved the world he just didn't kind of sort of love he so loved the world but even us who are Christians this is still the struggle isn't it this is still the root of many of our fears and our worries and our tensions, it's does God love me? Can anything separate me from his love? And Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. If you're a Christian this morning, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Nothing will separate you. That, that thing? No, that won't. That thing you're thinking of now that that list didn't include? That doesn't. And that one that just popped into your mind? That doesn't either. <laughs> nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
because it is the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Everything else can change. I can change. My circumstances can change. The world around me can change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when Jesus Christ is our anchor into the love of God, there is not a current, a whitewater rapid, or a tidal wave that can move you from that place. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. His love for you is not based on your performance. It's based on Him. And His love doesn't change towards you. Sometimes we have this tricky way of thinking of, well, God loves what I'll be. God doesn't love a future version of you more than He loves you right now. There is not a future version of Rick Mooney that God can or is able to love more than the current present day version of Rick Mooney. In eternity past, God looked down at Brent Smith and he said, I love him. I see his pride. I see his selfishness. I see all his faults. I see all the hurt that he will cause those around him. I will see all his failures. I'll see, uh, see it all. And I'll send my son to die for him, to redeem him, and to bring him into my family because I love him. That is mind-blowing love. That is motivating love. That is, there are no adjectives in the English vocabulary that can properly articulate the weight and the glory of the love of God towards His children. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also then with him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is not just fluffy... That is not just fluffy greeting card sentiment. That is a rallying cry to the church to shake the dust off the clothes and to pursue God into whatever He's calling us 
into. Your fears are crushed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Your worries are crushed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Your guilt is crushed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Your doubts of does God love you are crushed by the cross of Jesus Christ. He's calling you into things. Many of you can think of it right now. You know God's calling me to do this. It might be big. It might be pack up the whole family big, or it might be pick up the phone and ask for forgiveness big. He's calling you to something, and you've been putting obstacles in front. The gospel wants to tear through those obstacles and free you up to follow God in whatever he's calling you into. So that now, as a church, as individuals, as husbands, as wives, as parents, as electricians, as teachers, as cops, as guidance counselors, whatever it might be, I can now follow him. I can risk it all because my eternal risk has been taken away and God is for me. He gave his son, he'll give me all things. Nobody can bring any charge against me and nothing can separate me from his love. So, as I was preparing this message, I just felt that there are things now, present day, there are things that might be next week, there might be at the conference in May as we focus our thoughts on the kingdom of God, God's going to put something in your heart. He wants to prepare the ground now to drop that seed in, that he is for you, that nothing will separate you from his love. So that you're ready when that comes, you know God's calling me to this, that we move forward in it. Let's stand and I'll pray. Father, we thank you for the truth and the beauty and the power of your word. And this morning, our one uh, desire of our heart is to praise you for who you are. Uh, to lift your name high. We're so thankful that the God who is for us is for us. <laughs> that the God, uh, the almighty God, the ruler of heavens and earth is for us. That nothing will separate us from, our, from your love. And our other desire is that this morning we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but we'd be doers. That we take these things to heart. We've seen ourselves this morning and we just pray that we would not leave here uh, the same people, but we'd leave with the renewed faith to shake the dust off the clothes and to follow you into all that you've called us to for your glory. Amen.